and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is James M. Maloney, a lawyer and adjunct professor at the State University of New York Maritime College. We will discuss his work on nunchuck law, as well as uh, his work on maritime law and other subjects. So welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I, I got to start this interview this way. You were known very broadly as Professor Nunchuck. Why is that? Why Why are you known as P- Professor Nunchuck? What, what, can, 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 explain this to me. Well, okay, I think the Professor Nunchuck's label came from Stephen Colbert, um, and that was sometime around December of 2018 in reaction to something that really made the news, made me famous for 15 minutes. Uh, And that is that after almost 16 years of litigation, I was able to uh, convince a federal judge to strike down the ban on nunchucks or nunchaku or chuckasticks, as they call them, that had existed in New York since 1974. Well, so so what are nunchucks, Jim? Like, can you explain to listeners like what a nunchuck is, where they came from and how you became interested in them in the first place? Sure. Um, the story goes back, uh, and, and by the way, I have to say this is not based on personal knowledge. It goes back to 1609 um, in Okinawa. And in 1609 in Okinawa, um, Japan, or really uh, a subset of Japan, because there was no national government, it was uh, you know feudalism in those days, uh, the Satsuma clan of southern Japan invaded Okinawa. And Okinawa was one of those islands like... Uh, Uh, Sicily, or perhaps Trinidad, where people are always coming in and taking over. So the people are pretty resilient. Anyway, uh, with this invasion, there was a ban on all weapons by the local population. No more spears, no more swords, nothing. We're going to take over. You guys can't fight back. So um, the story is that the Okinawans organized basically a militia to fight against the invaders, and they used things that were available as common items, uh, including what became the nunchaku or nunchuck, as it's known in America. Um, And that is really something that probably was used either as a horse bridle or as a rice threshing device. It's not really clear what, but it's two sticks connected by a cord. In, you know, modern uh, biker usage, it could be a chain. But, uh, you know, it was originally some kind of cordage. And uh, they even used, uh, there's another weapon in their uh, bushido or their, their, you know, their technique called the eco. Eku, which is an oar, just an oar. I mean, it's a you know, it's an island nation, so oars were rather common, and those were developed uh, as a resistance weapon. So the nunchaku was one of those resistance weapons, and this uh, came about, as I said, in the early 17th century. So we'll fast forward now to me in 19 early 1970s. Um, I was a high school student in uh, in New Jersey, and um, the Bruce Lee movies had made nunchucks very popular. I didn't actually watch the Bruce Lee movies then, but I was interested in martial arts. And a friend of mine had a pair of nunchucks, homemade, and I got real interested in them. And um, and so I began to teach myself some techniques, but I was kind of a geek. So I went to encyclopedias and found out about this background even then. And, uh, you know, the Okinawan connection resonated with me. And I found a local dojo, martial arts studio, that taught an Okinawan style. And it was really my interest in nunchucks that made me study karate there. Uh, the style was called the Wechiru. It was in Fort Lee, New Jersey. I still remember, you know, many of the people there. Um, I didn't really go to black belt level. I went off to college instead. 
uh, and brought my nunchucks with me to the Bronx and uh, practiced there. And uh, the rest is history, except that, uh, of course, my, my ability to practice was interrupted because uh, New York, unbeknownst to me, really, in 1974 had made them illegal. And um, I managed to uh, find myself on the wrong side of the law of that ban a couple of times, the second of which gave me standing for my challenge. Anyway, I'll let you ask your next question on that. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about the New York law. Like, why was New York banning nunchucks in the first place? Like, what was the problem? And sort of what was the circumstances in which you found yourself in kind of run-ins with the law over that ban? Okay, well, the... Um... The big problem, I think, was a little bit of xenophobia. Um, these were new. Kids were swinging them around. People were scared. And um, I'm sure there were some incidents where they were uh, on the street having either, you know, rumbles or gang wars or attempted muggings. Um, and these things began to happen sporadically, I suppose, throughout the state and other states. You know, California had similar situations occurring. And the reaction of the legislature was, well, you know, what good are these things? They have no legitimate purpose. Let's ban them completely. Um, so um, the, the the mantra almost that was um, was repeated, and I found most of this in the uh, governor's bill jacket when I did some research, was that these uh, chucka sticks, as they called them, which is a you know a, a bastardization of nunchaku, um, they have no legitimate purpose, none whatsoever. They can only maim or kill. And so they need to be banned. And um, this legislation, you know, was proposed probably in 1973 and uh, was passed by both houses. And then it went to the governor for signature. It was right around the time that uh, Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller, died and Malcolm Wilson came in. So my bill jacket shows all these letters addressed to Governor Wilson from early 1974, repeating this mantra. I mean, from police departments and DAs and everybody, no legitimate purpose, no legitimate purpose. You, you know, that, that mantra was repeated endlessly in the letters. It was almost like there was a memo that went out and they repeated it. And there was one um, worth noting that stood out. Actually, two memos, but the one that really made it to the governor's office before the bill was signed was actually an internal memo, um, sort of internal for the executive branch, because it was from the Division of Criminal Justice Services. And it was written by Archibald Murray, uh, who later uh, left that uh, job to become head of legal aid in New York City and, and was you know, a giant in legal aid for many years. And his, uh, his beef was that, well, many members of the public use uh, nunchucks or chucka sticks for legitimate martial arts purposes. And it seems, you know, unfair and maybe even unconstitutional to prohibit that. And of course, that was ignored. And the bill was signed into law uh, in April of 1974. And then September of 1974 came into effect. Uh, an interesting thing that I dug out, <laughs> kind of uh, an oddity, was that when it was um, signed into law, um, the 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 statute, all of the weapons that were listed in um, <clears throat> in the penal law as per se banned still required um, intent to use them unlawfully. And that whole uh, section of the penal law was revised so that by September 1st, all of those weapons, the per se prohibited weapons that are now in 265.00 of the penal law, they didn't require any intent. You know, it, it was easier for... Um, 
for prosecutors to um, get a conviction if there was no requirement of intent, because, you know, how do you prove intent? It's going to be a troublesome thing. So nunchucks were, had the honor, dubious distinction, of being the first weapon in that list, um, or, or the last one added at that time, to, um, to uh, be a, a crime to possess, even without intent to use them unlawfully. So by September 1st, 1974, uh, under the book, you know, under the statutes on the books, um, there was uh, a ban on all of these weapons that were listed. Some of the other examples would be um, a sword, cane, uh, a billy. Nobody knows what that is, but it's in there. Uh, a number of things, switchblades, um, gravity knives, which is another topic of mine we might get to later. Um, but um, anyway, by September 1st, 1974, mere possession of these, even in your home, was illegal. It uh, didn't matter what your intended use was. Um, if you were in possession of such a thing, such an instrument, um, you would be guilty of a misdemeanor, unless, of course, you had a prior, and that would be a Class D felony. But uh, I didn't have any priors uh, on my first encounter with the police on this. Um, but I didn't even know about the statute. I had some vague, you know, off-the-street knowledge that, that they were illegal in New York. But I was growing up, uh, you know, at high school in New Jersey, and there was no problem. Um, so then I went off to college in the Bronx and brought him with me and I was in a relatively isolated area on a campus, uh, SUNY Maritime College, where I now teach, as you mentioned. And, uh, you know, nobody really worried about it. The guys on the fencing team uh, joined me in practicing with them. I, I used to go down to Philadelphia uh, to a martial arts supplier and bring back, you know, carloads of nunchucks. Uh, and, and it was never a problem. But then uh, in 1980, I gave somebody a demonstration late at night on the subway after he had been out hanging out. I had had them in my backpack. I said, check this out. And unfortunately, um, there were some transit police in the area. So I got into a, a bit of trouble for that. Um, ended up being a, a disorderly conduct plea. The, the, um, the, the usual for something like that is uh, with no priors is, is just disorderly conduct. So it's a violation. I, was, I wasn't convicted of any misdemeanors. I still practice law. I have no misdemeanors on my record yet. Um, so anyway, the, the big one, though, um, was, was in 2000. And that's a rather long story. But the bottom line is, gave me standing to bring my action. Um, police, actually without a warrant, came into my home and found the nunchucks under my couch. And um, I was prosecuted. It, you know, another plea bargain, not, not a big deal. But it gave me standing to challenge the possession of uh, the man on the possession of nunchucks in one's own home. Um, I was very careful to tailor it um, in that limited way. I didn't want to argue that one had a right to carry them around on the street. Um, so the only relief I was asking for was uh, from the ban on simple possession in the home. And one of the, few, one of the few issues I didn't have to confront was standing because I had actually been prosecuted. So that was the beginning. And um, the timetable on that, um, charges are brought in um, August of 2000, 20 years ago. And, um, and I waited until uh, the, matter, the criminal matter was resolved, which, of course, uh, took three years. Uh, well, not quite three, but in January of 2003, uh, you know, the charges were dismissed on consent, uh, you know, plea bargain, take uh, uh, disorderly conduct. And um, and so then February 18th um, of 2003, I was all ready. I mean, I had my complaint drafted. I brought the action, uh, declaratory judgment action in the Eastern District of New York, um, seeking a declaration that the ban was unconstitutional as applied to in-home possession. I kept it very circumscribed in that way. You know, ask for a little and you're better off is my philosophy. Uh, of course, I did um, do the little bit of the wet pasta litigation method. Uh, you throw it against the wall and see what sticks. I challenged them. Not, I challenged the ban not only on the basis of um, 
of the Second Amendment, which at that point was still uninterpreted by the Supreme Court for all practical purposes. But I also had a First Amendment challenge, you know, that it's expressive conduct, which was kind of weak, but, you know, threw it in there. And I had a, a fairly well-developed uh, argument in the complaint uh, that it violated unenumerated rights. And uh, I used, um, you know, so certain uh, cases that had recognized rights of privacy in the home and that sort of thing. Uh, from Griswold on up, um, and uh, to Lawrence v. Texas, actually, being most recent then. And, um, you know, that didn't really fly either, but I, I I didn't really know if I was going to be able to rely on the Second Amendment. So in the course of the litigation, the Second Amendment sort of came of age, and that was, uh, that was what made it a wonderful experience for me, a learning experience, is to watch that happen and kind of time my, my moves accordingly. Well, so maybe you could back up just a little bit and talk about the circumstances surrounding that second encounter with the law, because you talk a little bit about it on your blog, and it sounds, I mean, honestly, kind of terrifying and really abusive on the part of the government. And I wonder if you could just kind of explain the circumstances in which that happened. Right. We could go off on a long tangent. You know, it, it was a 12-hour um, experience, at least, you know, while the police were outside. Um, really began with a misunderstanding with um, somebody who uh, claimed to be a telephone worker, but I was involved in some other litigation that made me wonder um, because I had, uh, you know, the state in as a party. And, and I tried to get his name and he didn't want to give it to me. And I looked at him with a scope and he didn't seem to be bothered by that. The scope was... Um, mounted on a cane. It, I used to use it for, not for bird watching, although many people do that. I had uh, butterflies. I had Budlia davidii, which is a, um, a butterfly bush planted in the front yard at the time. Uh, and um, I used to use that to look at, uh, at the stuff in the front yard. And so I used it to look at him. And he later climbed down the pole. And then, you know, this van pulls up an hour later and they said, uh, hey, uh, can can you talk to us? I said, well, who are you? We're police. So they plain clothes. I said, are you state or federal? I said, well, both. I said, there's no such thing as both. Uh, you're one or the other. I don't really believe you're police at all. I don't know who you are. So um, with that initial distrust, um, things escalated a bit because I didn't want to come out. And, um, you know, for the next 12 hours, I was familiar already with Peyton v. New York, 1980. You know, if you want to arrest somebody in their home, you need a warrant. I said, why don't you guys just get a warrant? <laughs> 12 hours went by. They didn't manage to get a warrant. But they kind of smoked me out after a while. Uh, you know, they had an intermediary who said, you know, if you don't come out, um, we're going to they're going to break down the door and your family might get hurt. I'm like, but I, I'm not going to shoot back. Why does anybody have to get hurt? Plus, why do you have to come in? Why don't you just get a warrant? So we had that. Um, I... Um, I don't know. I get a little uh, adrenaline flowing whenever I talk about this. It's just now past the 20 year mark. And um, it was quite a, an experience. Uh, it was a little bit like Ruby Ridge without the bad consequences. Uh, I did have people pointing M16s at me. Uh, they did set up something across the, the way. And um, I saw them. I stuck my head out. Figured, you know, if we're going to go, we're going to go. I gave them the peace sign. They gave me the peace sign back. So, you know, there were elements of um, oppression, but there were elements of camaraderie. And in fact, those very cops, <laughs> oddly enough, went out on a, a party boat uh, fishing and a friend of mine was running the party boat. So, you know, it's a small world. Um, I, I tend to see things from both sides. Um, you know, the cops were doing what they were supposed to do. Uh, they didn't know what they were dealing with. Um, and I understand how it escalated. I think that um, it probably 
you know, it would have been better if they had just gotten a warrant. They kept saying, come out, we want to talk to you. I said, well, you know, you have a phone, you're talking to me. I know if I come out, I'm waiving my rights to be, you know, to, to under Payton v. New York. So why don't you, you know, either get a warrant or keep talking to me on the phone? And they did, but they cut off all my other communications and, you know, closed the streets. It was rather a big to do. Um, but, you know, uh, in, in retrospect uh, and looking back on it, it's one of those things that is a fantastic learning experience. You know, these trials by fire, you know, the, the trials by fire are great, right? Uh, as long as you don't burn to death. So it's sort of a, a flip side of that which does not kill you makes you stronger. So um, after all that, um, I, I really was uh, pretty motivated. I, I actually brought quite a few uh, pro se actions, including a libel action, which, you know, didn't necessarily flounder. It, I got what I wanted to achieve. But this was the big one. This was the, uh, this was the one that made a difference. And it was largely because it's declaratory judgment. I mean, you know, um, the doctrine of qualified immunity kills you on damages. I didn't really do any, any damages actions, uh, uh, pro se, cause that's not my thing. I, I have a, a kind of a line I draw. If I'm going to bring an action pro se, it has to be for prospective relief. That's going to benefit more people than me. Um, but, uh, in any event, qualified immunity, has a way of killing actions for damages, but declaratory judgment is wide open. I mean, that's that's something I think practitioners need to keep in mind is that if you if you want to avoid QI killing your case, seek only declaratory judgment, um, and then you will it, it can become established law, and then you've achieved something. So um, you know that was that was kind of my. Uh, strategy then, maybe not as well developed as I have in hindsight about the QI aspects of it, but uh, I was I, I had been thinking about some kind of challenge to uh, New York's Munchaku statute since, uh, well, since even before I went to law school. Um, you know, it, it bugged me. I mean, the history of uh, the ban on Munchaku is a history of oppression, really. Um, you know, the, 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 it emerged out of a ban on weapons by the Satsuma clan of Japan when they invaded Okinawa. Then in New York, um, it was very much a, a xenophobic reaction to this Asian thing that was coming in and, you know, uh, corrupting our youth and causing problems. Um, I mean, you know, a baseball bat, you could never think about banning the possession of baseball bats the way nunchaku were banned. But nunchaku were used in recreational martial arts just as baseball bats are used in recreational baseball games. Um, and, and in fact, both of my experts at my trial, I'm fast forwarding here, but I said, if you were going to try to fracture somebody's skull, which would be the better weapon, a baseball bat or a pair of nunchucks? Of course, both said the baseball bat. I mean, in fact, before I went to oral argument in the Second Circuit, there was a horrible, tragic killing, um, a bias crime, uh, in the New York area, in one of the boroughs, where um, an Ecuadorian guy who had just come in to see his brother was walking home late at night with his brother with his arm around him. They assumed they were gay, and it became a gay bashing thing, and the uh, the brother who had just come in from Ecuador was killed by being beaten to death with a baseball bat. And I mentioned that at my oral argument. I, I made a reference to it. I didn't go into too many details, but that was back at the Second Circuit. This case has such a long checkered past. You better steer me where you want to go next. <laughs> well, so Jim, I mean, I, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more again about the incident, because I mean, as I understand it, the initial justification for, you know, invading your house basically or barricading your house was the idea that you were 
you know, argue like supposedly pointing a gun at someone, which wasn't true. It was just a telescope. How did that become a case about nunchucks in the first place? Oh, well, because the nunchucks were, what, what happened was um, after the 12 hours, I decided, you know, uh, getting a little tired of this. I think I, I need a rest. Might, might as, I can't sleep here. I might as well sleep in the police station, you know? So, and my family was getting tired. My kids were only, you know, toddlers were 18 months old, but um, you know, it was a big strain on my wife. Everybody's home. And, um, you know, at one point I just made a considered decision, especially since I got that advice that the cops could break in at any time and, you know, your family might get shot. That's pretty convincing advice to say, okay, I'm coming out. So I did. And, um, you know, the charge was menacing. That was dismissed. Uh, the, uh, you know, related to the alleged firearm, the, um, the nunchucks that were found gave rise to um, that uh, charge, which, um, again, everything was disposed of by plea bargain. But once I had uh, gotten rid of that in January of 2003, uh, just less than a month later, I filed a federal action challenging the statute. I knew I had standing. You know, I had already gone down on standing on other challenges of mine. Um, uh, in fact, the one that involved um, the SUNY Maritime Land Grant, uh, that was a big issue. And that was the case that I was still working when the incident occurred. But um, in any event, the... Um, the, the connection, of course, between the event and the case, the declaratory judgment action, was really, more than anything else, that it was an event that gave me undisputed standing. I mean, you know, uh, standing, it's a funny thing. I, I've studied a lot of co comparative constitutional law. Standing is a weird thing in America because, you know, it allows an unconstitutional statute to stay on the books for a bit longer than it should because the right plaintiff doesn't come along. And I found uh, that in a series of transformative cases in the 80s and 90s, India, India's Supreme Court, um, really abolished the doctrine of standing so that um, if there's a, a law coming up and the legislature is, is, is putting together a law, the lawyers are already planning their challenge to it. And, and, and so it's almost like France. It's almost like in France, you know, there is no post-enactment challenge. It's just this third chamber of the legislature, the Constitutional Council, the Conseil Constitutionnel, they, they, they would review it before it becomes law, right? But uh, in India, it's a little a little more of a lag. Uh, you know, they, they can enact the statute, but if it's uh, constitutionally suspect, they can, um, you know, the lawyers can challenge it, and they're already organizing that as soon as the bill is being put together. Uh, in the U.S., it's much bigger lag. I mean, my case, right, the Nunchuck case, was enacted in 1974. Uh, Murray, uh, Archibald Murray, said maybe it's unconstitutional. <laughs> that was 1974. When did it get declared unconstitutional? 2018. 44 years is a long time for something that's unconstitutional to sit on the books. How many people have con been convicted of it in that time? A whole lot, you know? So it's a little um, disconcerting when you study a little com comparative constitutional law to see just how long that lag can exist in America. Uh, given our system. And the biggest obstacle, I think, is standing. So getting back to the point of tangency, the key thing about that event for purposes of my challenge was that it gave me undisputed standing. And it was one thing I could cross up my list of things that were going to torpedo my case. Of course, there are plenty of other things on the, on the list. <laughs> but I mean, in, in a weird way, it's almost like kind of kismet in your particular circumstance that they chose to prosecute you for possession of nunchucks and kind of gave you standing under the circumstances, especially because it just seems so strange. I mean, it has nothing to do or had nothing to do with why they were initially sort of pursuing you in the first place. <laughs> like, 
Why do you think they did that? And like, what does that say about how cops were using that law in the past? I don't necessarily fault them for doing that. What cops do is if they have evidence that can be the basis for a charge, they hand it over to the DA, they write it up, and, and, and you get charged with it. I mean, the, 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 the stories are myriad about people who are pulled over for one thing and something is found in the car, and then that becomes the big charge. You know, uh, Usually it's the car and not the home. In my case, it was the home. And yes, um, these searches and seizures were illegal. Uh, in my criminal defense, I did have a map. Well, I didn't have a map hearing. Actually, the map hearing was one of those carrots in front of the donkey that kept moving forward. Uh, but then, you know, I guess the threat of the map hearing was more powerful than the map hearing itself. And so it was a basis for a plea bargain. But I don't necessarily fault the cops for doing that in my case as much as I do in another one I knew about, which occurred a little later. Um, and um, I, I should mention this because I became aware of it. I spoke to um, counsel who was challenging the seizure. He was unsuccessful. But the um, the individual was named Aramis Sostre. He was a resident of Brentwood, Long Island. And um, he, uh, based on the federal complaint uh, that occurred after his dismissal, which took three years, kind of a magic number, um, you know, I, I got the facts. And the facts are along the lines of these, uh, as alleged anyway. Um, his wife had an Avon business and, um, there were a lot of people and, I, and it was a Hispanic area of the, the town and a lot of people were going in and out pretty frequently. So the cops said, it got to be a drug location. So some informant said, yeah, I bought heroin there. And I guess he got a deal for that. But, um, they did a surprise raid on the Sostre residence and, uh, knocked down walls and, you know, brought in dogs and, you know, kids were in the shower. They dragged them out and put them on the floor with guns on them. Um, and, uh, you know, for some reason, Mr. Sostre was incensed that they would be doing such a thing. Uh, they didn't find any drugs or any paraphernalia, but they found a pair of nunchucks in his closet. So he was charged with possession of nunchucks. That, I think, is a little bit more egregious than my case. You know, I did have some guns in my safe. They blew up the safe with explosives. The guns had all been bought legitimately elsewhere. And when I say guns, I mean uh, revolvers that I had bought pursuant to state law in states I resided in in the 80s, since 20 years later. Uh, separate from the ammunition, two of them were, you know, made inoperable because of New York's, you know, crazy gun laws. And, um, you know, they blew up the safe without a warrant and they charged me with those, you know. So, I mean, in my case, they wanted to get me for any possible weapons I might have had. You know, I was like uh, I was considered a bad boy in the local uh, local uh, <laughs> criminal justice system for a while. But it kind of blew over. I mean, you know, after three years, nobody really had the 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 desire to push it any further. And, um, you know, it, it was dismissed on a fairly cordial basis. I went through three assistant DAs, um, one criminal defense attorney. By the way, I, just for the record, I didn't represent myself pro se in that. They say, it, you know, an attorney who represents himself has a fool for a client. Well, I haven't heeded that in civil cases. But in criminal cases, yeah, I would never, ever think about representing myself as a criminal defendant. But um, let's move on from the criminal defense thing into the more interesting aspects of the uh, the civil case that emerged, because I think that was, uh, you know, the big learning experience for me. You know, the, the, the events of August 23rd, 24th, 2000 were, you know, uh, very educational, uh, and, you know, taught me a lot about situational awareness and, uh, uh, I guess, um, diplomacy. Uh, you know, I learned from my mistakes. Of course, I still wouldn't have gone out. I still wouldn't have gone out if they didn't have a warrant, but I probably would have um, been a little less defensive. The thing, the thing is, I didn't know they were cops at first. That kind of put me on high guard. But anyway, um, the, um, the case itself, um, 
you know, as I said, I brought it before Heller was even a glimmer in anyone's eye. Heller, which began as uh, Parker, uh, was a challenge brought by um, really the, the Cato Institute. Uh, Bob Levy had, had come up with the ideas behind it. And they brought that, I don't know when they started, but it was definitely later in the 2000s. So my case started in 2003. And um, I originally didn't even, well, I sued uh, for declaratory judgment only, no damages. I sued um, Spitzer as attorney general, um, <clears throat> because Spitzer's or Spitzer's administration, uh, had, um, had, um, uh, basically threatened a couple of outside martial arts suppliers outside the state, um, with, um, prosecution if they didn't stop exporting, if you want to call it exporting, um, martial arts weapons and other prohibited weapons into New York. And, um, I thought that was a pretty good basis to, to bring in Spitzer. And I also, um, named the, uh, local DA, uh, at the time, Dennis Dillon, now deceased. Um, and um, I let Dillon out right off the bat because the county attorney said, can you please? You know, or one of the county attorneys. And I said, well, as long as we can stipulate that I can bring him back if I need him for standing and justiciability, no problem. So then it was just me in the attorney general's office. And um, the first decision, I guess it would have been around 2005, um, the federal judge, Arthur Spat at the time, said um, that uh, – you know, it was not um, viable as against the attorney general. The person charged with enforcing the law was the um, the DA. He gave me leave to amend. I amended. You know, I had a stipulation that there wouldn't be a problem and um, came back in. And then there was some more motion practice. And, of course, now I had two opponents. I had the, um, the AG's office and I had the county attorney's office. And in 2007, um, they were successful in getting the case dismissed. Uh, by then, uh, the Heller case had not yet come down, but it was in the pike. And um, what was Parker versus District of Columbia had already been decided. That was in the D.C. Circuit. And a two out of three judgment of that panel found that uh, the ban on handguns there violated the Second Amendment at the sec and that the Second Amendment was a personal right. So I knew I had that one in the pike. And I actually wanted to keep things moving slowly. You know, a lot of litigation, especially if you're a solo uh, working pro se, is a matter of timing and trying to wait for the coattails to grab. And, you know, when they go by, you grab them, you know. <laughs> so um, I actually made a motion to the – of course, I appealed. And I made a motion to the Second Circuit to delay a uh, hearing um, until Heller was decided by the Supreme Court. And I got a decision back denying that. But then they scheduled it. But there was only a nominal denial because they just kept it on a slow bell and waited until it was decided. So they granted it, you know, uh, tacitly granted it, you know, didn't formally grant it. I guess they didn't want to set any precedent that they'd grant motions like that. But, uh, you know, the one Heller was decided, I was I was I was there in front of the Second Circuit. Um, and I think I asked I, I put in a 28 J letter, which is the local rule about new cases. But I, it really didn't need any briefing. I asked for more briefing. I didn't get the opportunity. But, I mean, I think they had read the case. <laughs> it wasn't a big deal. Um, so then um, the funny story on that one, of course, is that um, – well, a couple of funny stories. Uh, my panel was um, um, Sonia Sotomayor, um, who was on the court at the time, and uh, uh, Rosemary Pooler and uh, um, – Bob Katz, who's chief judge, uh, who since became chief judge of the Second Circuit. So that was my panel. And um, in the weeks prior, uh, I had and I didn't know she was on the short list for the Supreme Court. It wasn't generally known. Maybe some insiders knew. But the funny thing is that at oral argument, I um, 
I, I got a question from Judge Sotomayor, and then I got a question from Judge Pooler, and I answered Judge Pooler's question first. And I, what happened was, in the two weeks prior, I had been in front of a couple of appellate panels in the state court system where their title is justice, right? They're, it's the Supreme Court of the State of New York Appellate Division. Supreme Court of the State of New York is upside down. It's not the highest court. It's the lowest court. It's the lowest general jurisdiction court. Well, you know that. You went to NYU. So anyway, bottom line is, um, you know, there I am at oral argument. And I, I said, getting back to Justice Sotomayor's question. And they all laughed. I'm like, why, why are they laughing? <laughs> then I found out. Um, so what happened then, um, I got a nice, yeah, it was, it was, this is one of those anecdotes from a practitioner that's kind of, you know, worthwhile because you, you don't, you know, to, to live this stuff is, is, is like a gift, you know, I mean, it's fun. Um, so, um, anyway, they, they affirmed and, um, and, um, uh, on the basis really that, uh, there were some old cases, press reveal and why Cruikshank, you know. That said, the Second Amendment isn't incorporated. And, you know, we have selective incorporation as a doctrine. And the last major amendment to, to have to go through that filter is the Second Amendment, I think. There are a couple of oddities left. But, I mean, the, the, the major Bill of Rights provision that had never been interpreted enough to even get there was the Second Amendment. As I said, it was 217 years between, uh, you know, 1791 Bill of Rights uh, ratification and uh, 2018 uh, Heller before even the most fundamental question was answered. Is it an individual right or is it a collective state's right? Who knew? Um, so anyway, the, the Second Circuit decided they didn't have the authority to uh, incorporate, you know, because of these prior cases that were a century old or so, um, which is, you know, a defensible position. Reasonable minds can differ. Uh, I had been pounding footnote 23 of Heller, which said, you know, basically that um, lower courts have a duty to examine whether it's incorporated. Um, and oddly, just before that oral argument, I was at an event at the City Bar Association where um, a number of panelists were talking about the Second Amendment, and I got a chance to ask the panel a question. And Ted Cruz, who was not yet a senator, he was still Solicitor General of Texas with a lot of experience arguing before the Supreme Court, said, you know, I would really pound footnote 23. <laughs> So um, that's kind of what I did at oral argument. Um, didn't work. Uh, so they they decided, in a procurium opinion, that uh, you know the Second Amendment, whatever Heller may say, was not incorporated as against the states. So I then my case then became the um, the first viable candidate for a vehicle to incorporate the Second Amendment as against the states. And then two more quickly emerged: uh, McDonald v. Chicago and uh, NRA v. Chicago. And they took McDonald. But uh, thank God I had some help because that was a period in my life where, uh, as regards this case, I was despondent. I really didn't have the money or the time to petition for cert, uh, and I, I really needed help. And I got help from um, Kirkland and Ellis in D.C., uh, who, who, you know, came in pro bono and paid the fees and, you know, did a great job on the petition for cert. It was a partner and several associates. I felt like a rich guy with a whole law firm working for me. It was a wonderful experience. And, uh, you know, that got me in the door. They didn't take my case as a vehicle, but they, um, they did take McDonald v. Chicago. And I got what's known inside the Beltway as a GVR when McDonald decided, yeah, grant, vacate, and remand. So then I was back in the game and I have a folder on my computer uh, where I, you know, I keep the files from then on. I call it Sisyphus, Sisyphus, you know, down at the bottom of the hill again, pushing the rock up, you know, <laughs> the myth of Sisyphus, you know, um, because, uh, you know, there I was. It was remanded. It was remanded to the Second Circuit. I started writing briefing for the Second Circuit, but then the Second Circuit just remanded the district court. And so there I was back down in the trenches, you know, <laughs> 
And it finally got to trial, to fast forward, it got to trial in 2017. Um, and um, I had been trying to avoid trial. I, I mean, I think both sides or all three sides at one point agreed there aren't any fact issues, right? But uh, the judge saw through that. Um, and it's safe to say there were fact issues because after Heller, and by the way, I, I amended the complaint. I made a Rule 15 motion to amend the complaint, which was successful to incorporate what Heller had, you know, had uh, come up with in the meantime. So, um, and there really wasn't much to say with McDonald. I mean, I guess that was incorporated too, double meaning unincorporated. But uh, bottom line is I had a new complaint um, as of um, um, 2010 or 2011. And uh, it, I kept it on the slow bell. I didn't want to go to trial. Uh, trial is expensive. Uh, trial is time consuming. This is a pro se case. I could not get any remuneration whatsoever for my time. And I might say at this point, my estimate of my time is 10,000 hours or more on this case, which Malcolm Gladwell says is what you need to become, you know, proficient at something. Right. So that's I guess I got it. <laughs> uh, I don't have any money for it, but, you know, um, maybe some maybe a listener will um, be very wealthy and want to you know, send me an award. Um, so mark that part of the tape. Um, anyway. Uh, Getting back to um, getting back to the the, the chronology here, um, the trial in 2017 was uh, was the first for me in many ways. I'm really more of an appellate litigator than a trial litigator. I have some experience in the maritime field when I was at the firms doing bench trials, which is good because this was a bench trial. Uh, uh, juries worry me because uh, I'm worried they might not, you know. They can go, you know, I don't know. They just worry me. I don't want to say anything bad about juries, but it's 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 still random. It's so random. I mean, who knows? But anyway, issues. this was all issues of law, really. Um, but there were issues of fact. And this is what I think the judge correctly identified. Under Heller, um, you know, Heller did an interesting thing. There's no militia connection to the person, but there's certainly a militia connection to the weapon. Um, it must be a weapon that is, uh, you know, basically in common use for lawful purposes. Um, and if you look at the definition of arm, which is sort of a broader thing on the Venn diagram, you know, surrounding weapon, it's probably something that has to be carryable. You know, it couldn't be a cannon or a nuclear weapon. That's not an arm in the first place. And then a subset of arms is weapons that would be protectable. Um, uh, and weapons that are entitled to Second Amendment protection under the little guidance we have from the Supreme Court would be those that are in common use for lawful purposes. So I was given the burden by the judge of establishing that, um, which seemed reasonable enough, but also burdensome enough, because she very specifically wanted um, expert testimony and statistics. And so I had to scramble um, to do that. I actually had two experts in mind from you know, the years I was involved. I don't know if I'd call them experts. I, I, I argue that they were fact witnesses, but you know, they were put in more like experts. And, you know, that, that was fine in the end. Uh, one was um, Kevin Orcutt, who um, is a retired police officer from the Denver area who invented and marketed the Orcutt Police Nunchaku. So um, this is a, a, a nunchuck arrangement that uh, police have used. And at the peak, I guess, maybe 200 forces around the country. Um, and it's not for whacking the suspect and beating them like with a baton. It's for using the nunchaku to, you know, to trap a limb, a wrist or an ankle and subdue the suspect without actually causing 
much if any physical harm. They're designed to have some flexibility. So the the actual um, the stick part is is made of a uh, synthetic that will bend a little bit, and the rope part is made of uh, nylon that will stretch a little bit. So it's much less likely to break a bone or anything than you know something some other design. And um, Kevin Orca testified at trial, and my theory there was you know if it's uh, in use by police forces around the country. That's presumptively common use for lawful purposes. And I wanted to round that out with somebody who could talk about its, you know, recreational and physical training martial arts stuff. And uh, Chris Pelletieri uh, over in uh, California, in the L.A. area, um, I had been aware of him for a while. He has a dojo there and he kind of specializes in nunchucks. And it's in a state where they're banned except for in a dojo. So, um you know, it was uh, it was good to have his testimony. And then uh, something I'm not going to go into too much detail because the, the business didn't want to have everything uh, out in the open. But I ended up subpoenaing um, information from a big martial arts supplier on the East Coast to get the statistics that the judge wanted. And, uh, you know, they were cooperative once the uh, subpoena was signed. And, you know, I, I don't think they meant to be uncooperative. I think it was just that, uh, you know, they didn't want to give their business records unless they had to. So I kind of just made them have to and it worked out fine. Um, but then we went to trial. And actually, that's a little aside here. That's where I decided that maybe I'd stop being a purist and use the word nunchucks instead of nunchaku. Nunchaku uh, is a Japanese word, uh, and I'm probably mispronouncing it. I think the U is kind of uh, you know, almost voiceless. So it's nunchaku, nunchaku. Um, but, um, and that's how we came nunchucks in America. But, you know, I thought, well, I'll, I'll be a purist. All my papers had nunchaku, nunchaku, uh, you know, spelled N-U-N-C-H-A-K-U. Um, and then I realized at, at one point during the trial that the very fact that the word nunchucks is in common usage in the United States establishes that the instrument itself is in common use, you know? So it's a good thing, <laughs> you know? I, I think that was a, a phenomenon that occurred all around the United States. It's hard to get proof of it or statistics on it, but they're, they're just a fun instrument to play around with. I mean, all that spinning around is, you know, probably not um, very good for your ability to use them as a weapon. It's really more important to be able to strike, but it's a hell of a lot of fun and it's a great workout. I mean, you know, I was a skinny, geeky kid in high school and I started working out with those things and my deltoids developed and other muscles in my arms. And it was just, you know, it was great. You know, I, I wasn't good at the other sports, but I had a lot of fun playing around with those things. And uh, I mean, I was okay with swimming and running, but you know, I wasn't much of a team sports guy, you know, so uh, nunchucks worked out for me. Um, although it became a team sport after a while, because as I said, in college, uh, a lot of the people on the fencing team got interested, and we used to work out together. Uh, and I, I actually made a couple of runs to Philadelphia to bring some back because you couldn't get them in New York. But uh, I digress. Um, go ahead. Steer me in the right direction here, Brian. <laughs> well, so, Jim, I'm, I, one thing that I, I can't help but wondering about is why was the state of New York so intent on pursuing this? I mean, by the time you were bringing this claim, why did they care? about preserving this law, making nunchucks illegal, why didn't they just say, okay, fine, whatever, we don't care, like, this doesn't matter, this is stupid? Well, you know, um, I'm going to have to be devil's advocate here. Um, I actually don't mind that they did in the long run because it got me, you know, something meaningful. But uh, as a devil's advocate, I would say, 
you know, that's what the attorney general is, off, is supposed to do is defend the law. It actually kind of shifted over to the county attorneys once um, once the AG was out of the case. I actually had the AG and the governor at one point. By the way, this case had four different captions. It was really it was Maloney v. Spitzer. Then it was Maloney v. Cuomo. Then it was Maloney v. Rice. And then finally, it was Maloney v. Singas. Um, Spitzer and Cuomo were both in as attorney general. Um, Spat, the first federal judge, dismissed um, the governor and the attorney general. I had also named the governor. I forget uh, who was governor when, but maybe Cuomo was in as governor. No, it was too early. Anyway, bottom line is that, uh, you know, um, the attorney general's job is is to defend the constitutionality of statutes or the solicitor general's job if it goes up. But, um, you know, I don't fault them for defending it. I mean, you know, it's on the books. Somebody's challenging it. You make arguments, leave it up to the judiciary. I, I have no problem with that. The county attorney's office, which had it solo after the uh, state defendants were uh, dismissed, um, they were a little more vicious. I, I mean, I found the attorney general's office to be a cleaner opponent and not making ad hominem arguments and stuff like that. Uh, I got a lot of ad hominem arguments from the county attorney's office. In fact, the Second Circuit brief focused on me. It was like, uh, well, Maloney is irrational, and it's not unconstitutional to, to, to ban an irrational person from having uh, these weapons. And the Second Circuit didn't even address it, you know, But because um, it, it's, a, it's a weak argument. I mean, I'm challenging the statute itself. I'm a lawyer. I'm challenging the statute. But, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I saw a lot of ad hominem arguments from them. Um, in fact, uh, my counsel at Kirkland and Ellis wrote a letter saying, I hope this isn't going to happen in the uh, Supreme Court briefing. And it didn't. Uh, but, of course, at every level, you get new personnel. So you, in this case, at every level, I was the only personnel. I was, you know, the client and the, the lawyer. You know, in the pro se case, you have the luxury of uh, calling all the shots. It's actually kind of nice. The only problem is you don't get paid. But, um, you know, um, why did they do it? Because that's their job. I don't have a big problem with uh, the state or the county defending um, – a statute. I actually have a problem conceptually with it being forced on uh, local county attorneys to defend the constitutionality of a state statute because the named uh, defendant is the DA. There's something in Congress about that. I mean, the DA is both a state and a county employee in New York. Uh, and in, in Nassau, um, they have a fairly large um, county attorney's office that can handle the work. Uh, I had a parallel action that emerged later up in the Northern District of New York, and I spoke to the county attorney up there. He said, I'm the only one here, and I've actually never been into federal court. So they had to farm it out to a private firm. Uh, that basically got put on hold and, you know, t it tagged my, my pro se case. I sort of hoped it would actually get active because then I could make fees. But, you know, there are a lot of side stories here. But then um, another example is um, in my Gravity Knife case, which I challenged uh, um, a couple of years ago. I guess I started in 2014. Um, that was um, defended by civil attorneys in the district attorney's office in New York County. That was Krakow v. Vance. Uh, the, uh, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, so stop me if, if it worries you. But Okay, so the, the grabbing knife thing was interesting because um, that was not, of course, a Second Amendment case. Uh, what was happening is um, – a little history on that real quick. The um, – Switchblades were banned, I guess, around 1957. And again, it was a movie, just like the Bruce Lee movies led to the nunchuck ban, you know, uh, the play and, and uh, the movie West Side Story. All the kids wanted switchblades. And I, I don't know if that, you know, cause and effect, chicken and egg. I mean, maybe the switchblades were around and the movie took that up. But bottom line is, you know, people worried about switchblades, which, you know, can kill you a lot more easily than a, nunchuck, a pair of nunchucks can. True. But um, anyway, there was a ban on those. And then what happened apparently was that um, – Owners of switchblades, you know, people who had them and um, and manufacturers even uh, figured they'd get around the law because um, it had to be that it would open automatically with a 
push the button. Well, if you remove the spring, all you have to do is push the button and snap it. it takes very little centrifugal force, or you can just almost hold it upside down and it'll open up. Um, and so um, cops were actually unable to enforce the switchblade ban when the springs were removed from switchblades uh, by owners and manufacturers of, of the knives. And so the legislature in 1959 jumped in and banned the gravity knife. They called it a gravity knife. And um, that pretty much sat idly on the books like a, a mushroom spore until it sprouted in the early 2000s um, with uh, Vance's prosecutions. Um, Cyrus Vance Jr., the current DA of Manhattan in, a, in Newark County, technically, um, decided to start prosecuting uh, people for possession of gravity knives. Uh, but interestingly, the DA's office also um, reached a lot of consent uh, decrees or, or um, deferred prosecution agreements, I should call them, uh, with vendors. Um, and the vendors had to give the DA's office quite a bit of money for you know those illegal sales. And then the vendors still had to worry about, gee, is it a gravity knife or not? Because the problem is, um, it's a wonderful article, by the way, by um, John Campbell in the Village Voice from 2014 about the whole history. Um, and just I mentioned that as a cross-reference. You can find it online. But uh, what happened was in the years since 1950, between 1959 and the early 2000s, um, a new type of knife emerged. And it was a knife that was designed to be opened with one hand. Um, it usually would have a thumb hole or um, some kind of a, a, you know, a little stud that you could hit with your thumb, and you could open the knife with one hand. Now, in order to make it openable with one hand, you need less spring power holding it closed. You can't take a Swiss Army knife and do that because it's got a lot of spring power. So they had weaker springs. Now, could you open it by flicking the wrist? It depends. It's a matter of technique, strength, etc. Et right? So a lot of these knives that could be open with one hand, which aren't per se illegal, um, were being used as a basis for criminal prosecution, uh, and it was an easy collar for the cops. Uh, my client was collared in just this way. He's on the subway. Uh, the clip of the knife, they usually have a clip, is visible from the outside of his pocket. The police officer approaches, says, uh, excuse me, sir, is that a knife in your pocket? Uh, I'd like to see that. Please put your hands uh, behind your head and let me take that knife and test it. And then they flick it. And um, if they can get it to open with a flick of the wrist, and sometimes even if they can't, they call it a gravity knife. Um, I think the impetus behind that legislation uh, is that, uh, you know, a knife that can be opened with one hand is a greater risk uh, for, um, you know, being used to surreptitiously stab somebody. Uh, a knife is um, kind of a weapon of stealth. You have to be very close. In fact, it's, it's because of... Uh, my awareness of the danger of knives, I became interested in nunchucks. My father was stabbed to death when I was six. But um, the bottom line is that I think the, the motive here was probably not so terrible. It was to get knives off the street that, um, you know, could be opened with one hand. So any of these knives that had a little thumb hole or whatever, you can open with one hand. They're designed to do that. But that per se is not illegal. However, since they have weaker springs, cops that are trained and have good, strong forearms can get them to open, even if the owner can't. But, of course, that's a vagueness problem, a big vagueness problem, because the statute doesn't say they're illegal because they can be opened with one hand. It says they have to be openable by gravity or centrifugal force. So um, that was kind of a long battle. Um, and uh, just to shortcut the, the end result, um, I, I – there was another challenge to it uh, that was unsuccessful. It was Knife Rights v. Vance. That went all the way up to the Second Circuit, and there was a petition for cert that didn't get granted. Um, but uh, a lot of stuff happened along the way. My case took a slightly different approach uh, so that I wouldn't be uh, 
thought of as challenging it facially. I wanted to challenge it as applied, so I kind of came up with a uh, first time, every time, BIC kind of idea. If it opens on the first try, it can be prosecuted. If it doesn't uh, open right away, it's not readily openable and it can't be prosecuted. And in, in any event, to fast forward, um, the Southern District um, granted my summary judgment motion, and that was the timing. Again, I, I seem to occasionally have very good timing. Um, that decision came down uh, after the legislature had signed their third attempt to um, get rid of the gravity knife statute. New York legislature was, you know, doing a pretty good job of getting it off the books. Uh, the first two times, Governor Cuomo vetoed it. So that didn't work. Um, the third time was the charm. You know, third time is the charm. And Cuomo said, because the legal landscape had changed in reference to the Krakow case that I had, um, he said that, uh, you know, he had no choice but to, to sign into law the ban. Yet, that's still currently on appeal in the Second Circuit. <laughs> Why? Because the legislature did not... Um, did not actually repeal the definition. And um, so the DA's office has appealed that, and they took the position that it was moot and wanted to strike the decision below. Needless to say, I opposed that position, and I think that it's still, um, from an interpretive perspective, viable since the definition remains on the books and any other jurisdiction could tag onto that definition. The wrist flick test, as it's called, is based on the definition. Uh, a gravity knife, you know, under 265.00 sub whatever, uh, can be opened by gravity or centrifugal force. So, um, you know, that definition remains on the books. I don't know whether that was a considered decision on the part of the legislature or just, uh, you know, chance, but um, it, it, it keeps the gravity knife uh, case, uh, I guess, viable for purposes of appellate review. Um, so that's that's pending. I guess we'll have oral argument this fall. Um, it's been fully briefed for a couple of months now. Uh, but that's sort of a side tangent on the nunchuck thing. The thing, you know, it's funny. They both have to do with centrifugal. Um, the the nunchucks are also known in the statutes as centrifugal force sticks, and centrifugal force uh, is what opens so-called gravity knives. And what's interesting is that all this legislative jargon is at odds with what the physicists uh, point out, which is that it's a it's really centripetal force. <laughs> Um, for it's worth, I mean, you know, physics and the law sometimes don't uh, don't work in harmony, um, and the law wins. One thing that really strikes me about all of these cases that you mention is that I think most people think about the Second Amendment as being about guns and about gun control, but you're really focused on very kind of different, albeit adjacent questions. And I wonder how you think that the questions that you're asking and the problems that you're posing inform or ought to inform the way we think about what the Second Amendment protects and also maybe about like how we should think about the kinds of rights that people should have to own things that you know, they use as tools or as various kinds of, you know, exercise equipment or self-defense, you know, mechanisms and so on. Right. Well, um, as I said earlier, this um, whole 15 plus year litigation allowed me to watch the Second Amendment, um, you know, grow up or at least start to grow up. Um, and I guess the first thing I, I, I should uh, comment on is that uh, even before I took on this case and even before I went to law school, uh, I was very aware of um, the tension between 
the right to keep and bear arms and the very big problem of gun violence in America. And I was correspondingly very aware of what I thought to be the biggest obstacle to resolving that tension and creating, um, you know, a normative system whereby uh, both can be accommodated, sort of like in the First Amendment. You know, you have uh, a right to free speech, but you can't shout fire in a crowded movie theater. Well, you know, hopefully you have the right to keep and bear arms, but you can't fire in a crowded movie theater. But um, the problem, the problem really, uh, the parallel problem I started to refer to, is that the Supreme Court left it open for far too long. Um, one of the um, one of the one of the things that influenced me right when I was in law school came out in 1994. The late William Van Alstyne, big fan of his, he he wrote an article about the personal right or an essay really about the personal right to bear arms, and he referred to the state of the law as one of arrested jurisprudence, because as of 1994, the Supreme Court had not yet even decided whether it was an individual right or a collective one. I mean, all you really had was U.S. v. Miller in 1939. It said, you know, a sawed-off shotgun has no uh, reasonable relationship to a well, well-regulated militia, but that doesn't really tell you anything. Uh, and there wasn't even a, a full appearance by counsel in that case. So we were nowhere by 94, and we were still nowhere by 2003. Uh, but anyway, to get to my point here, I think the biggest problem we have in trying to um, – solve the problem of gun violence in America, which obviously relates to the Second Amendment. And yes, Second Amendment is not just about guns. It could be about, uh, well, under the uh, Kitano case, it's obviously also about, um, you know, uh, stun guns. And in my case, it's about nunchucks. It's about any arms. And, and Keller defines arms, but I don't want to go off on that tangent yet. The big problem is this. If the Supreme Court doesn't have, if there's no, forget about the Supreme Court, but you need an established, well developed jurisprudence of the right in order for both sides to reach a consensus on what can be done. And we have only begun to scratch the surface of developing that jurisprudence. And again, the Supreme Court is the only one that can really put it in place. I mean, what the lower courts say is great, but it really doesn't have any long-term effect. So right now you have basically, I don't know, two and a half, two and three quarters cases from SCOTUS, right? You've got um, Heller, which tells you some things. You've got McDonald, which basically only tells you that it's incorporated as against the states, whatever Heller says. And then you have Caetano, which is interesting. And for the listeners who aren't aware of it, it was a procurium opinion with um, a concurrence uh, from uh, Alito and, uh, and Thomas. I forget which one wrote it. Scalia was dead by then, or he would have written a very interesting concurrence. But um, the bottom line is that Jamie Caetano had a stun gun and uh, – she was prosecuted for mere possession of it, and the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts said, uh, you know, this is a dangerous and unusual weapon because it wasn't around at the time of the founding. And, of course, that's not in accord with what Heller says at all. They do use the term dangerous and unusual weapon, but it's not because it wasn't around at the time of the founding. So the, the Supreme Court, without briefing, once that case was uh, on its docket, uh, wrote a procurement opinion, uh, basically sending it back to um, Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts to fix their uh, erroneous reasoning. Uh, that was kind of a good case for me because it established at least that, yeah, it doesn't have to be a firearm to be an arm for Second Amendment purposes. But Heller had really established that because Heller, um, there's a passage in Heller that refers to uh, an old dictionary from the times, you know, late 1700s, um, that says an arm is anything that a man weareth or useth to striketh at another, you know, it had the old language. But uh, basically, the idea is an arm is anything that you can carry um, for self-defense purposes. So it would include, I think, under Heller, uh, certainly nunchucks, but even a bulletproof vest. I mean, you wear it. I think it would not include 
big heavy things that you couldn't bring as a militia member. So it wouldn't include a giant cannon. It wouldn't include a nuclear device. Um, you know, um, whether or not you can carry it in a car, I don't know. And then you can have a Gatling gun in the back of your pickup truck, I guess. But uh, the bottom line is, um, to get back again to the point of tangency, the problem we have in America now is that oppositional democracy, as I uh, unfortunately like to call it, is, is preventing, um, you know, any kind of reasonable accommodation. But the oppositional democracy, you know, two, two, two opposing sides, and I don't like to characterize sides too much because there are many viewpoints, but I mean, look at it like this. You have a lot of people who basically they don't own firearms. They, they hear of all these horrible incidents, which are really, you know, gut-wrenching, you know, mass shootings. And they say, why do you need, uh, you know, a semi-automatic magazine-fed centerfire rifle? They say assault weapon, but that's kind of what we're talking about here. Why do you need those? You know, and okay, reasonable question. And then there are, you know, all, I guess, 10 million Americans who have AR-15 say, well, I have had one for the past 20 years or 25 or 30 years, and I've been responsible with it, and I haven't killed anybody. And, you know, anything could happen any day, and I want to be able to defend my home. Um, so, you know, the fear is, uh, that, uh, and then there are the other gun owners who don't have, um, any full auto or semi-auto, I shouldn't mention full cause that's a whole different area, but they don't have any semi-automatics. They have, you know, some bolt actions and whatever, but, uh, you know, they fear that if this one is banned the next day, another one's going to be banned. Everybody's worried about everybody on the one side is worried about today's reasonable measures leading to tomorrow's confiscation. And those on the side that want to limit firearms access say, why are you being unreasonable? And the problem, as I see it, is that there is no safe uh, bulwark against um, total disarmament yet. Uh, we don't know what the parameters of the Second Amendment are. So, you know, we started much too late. Uh, 2008 was certainly a century too late. Ben Alstein you know, points out that the First Amendment jurisprudence really began at the turn of the 20th century. And now we have Second Amendment jurisprudence beginning at the turn of the 21st or slightly after. And it's a, it's a slow and tedious process because of the way our system is designed. Um, and, and, and also our democratic system makes it very difficult. You know, the two-party system tends to be one in which um, people take opposing positions and you decide which of the two opposing positions you like. The solution to gun violence in America is not going to be solved with opposing positions. It's going to be solved by um, putting together a sensible plan that um, everybody can live with. Uh, but everybody can't live with it now because we don't know what the parameters are of the limits of that plan. That's that's where we get into this big trouble. Um, I guess if I were to say um, propose a solution, um, and I, you haven't asked me to, but um, I think, you know, first of all, the Supreme Court needs to take cases as they come up. But my thinking has been, and, and one of the reasons that I really felt the, the Nunchuck case was, was worth pursuing, was that maybe the interesting questions are answered in the non-firearms cases. Um, one of the things that I was painfully aware of after 2008 was the rubric in Heller, dangerous and unusual weapon. Um, the, the Heller court, um, Heller majority, five to four opinion by Scalia, the, um, the court had basically articulated this concept without much development that certain weapons can be banned completely if they are dangerous and unusual. And in reliance of that, they spoke about bans on carriage of things like uh, switch, uh, not switchblades, but dirks and stilettos and, and brass knuckles and things like that. Uh, and yet at the same time, they were talking about um, 
bans on total ownership. Uh, and, and really all of that has to be looked at in the context of uh, the courts not wanting to overrule United States versus Miller in 1939, which said that a sawed-off shotgun is not entitled to any protection. So um, the question then becomes, which weapons are not entitled to any protection at all? Uh, we can put sawed-off shotguns in that category. But my big worry was that, well, you know, um, and of course my opponents, you know, pounded this, especially the county, um, that nunchucks are dangerous and unusual. You know, and for unusual, for dangerous, you know, they talked about, a, you know, the terrible capacity to just, you know, fracture a skull, which is kind of a myth. Uh, and the unusual, because, you know, how many people re really use them for self-defense, um, which is, you know, an interesting point. But, uh, you know, my take on it was always that uh, if that rubric is going to be developed, it should be along the lines of something with high destructive capacity, especially when um, that uh, the, the aiming of it is, is more difficult. So a hand grenade to my mind, would be a good example of a weapon that doesn't deserve Second Amendment protection because you can't use a hand grenade without uh, putting other people at risk. Um, the recent movie, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, has what I think would be the paradigmatic challenge that I'd like to lose. It is the flamethrower, which is now available uh, commercially. Uh, the scene in the movie, the, the, the person is a home invader and that person is in a pool, so you don't have to worry about fires catching on. But if you're in L.A. suburbs and you use a flamethrower in your backyard, you can start an uncontrollable fire. I mean, you know, that's the current events, right? It, it does seem like under the state's definition, like lawn darts wouldn't be protected by the Second Amendment. I'm sorry, what wouldn't be protected? Lawn darts? Yeah, lawn darts, like darts, you know, like the ones you throw up in the air and like they land in the ground and... You know, like everyone's always where they, they're going to brain someone, but like, you know, those are a weapon too, right? But, and they're, they used to be common, but they're unusual now. Well, that's another question. You know, if, if something is unusual, is it unusual because it was banned? In which case, you know, can the court take cognizance of that? It's only unusual as a, like a bootstrapping thing. So I think, you know, in my case, I did okay. The judge recognized that you can't look at New York statistics to see how many people have nunchucks since they've been banned for 40 years. Um, but the lawn darts thing is interesting. Um, the, you know, I guess you have to first begin with the practical question of would a legislature ban it before you have to worry about uh, how would it hold up to Second Amendment scrutiny? Um, so I don't think we'd have to worry too much about lawn darts because, you know, what, what prompts the legislature to ban something is it's either use in a crime or some kind of fear about it's being used in the crime, uh, being used in a crime. Um, so the flamethrower thing I think would be, would be viable. But anyway, what happened in my case with the, um, this whole dangerous and unusual question was essentially nothing. Uh, there was a lot of briefing on it. You know, they, they said dangerous and unusual. I said no. Uh, but the court focused rather on the whole question of um, common use for lawful purposes. Um, and the case took an interesting turn. Uh, what happened, actually took a lot of interesting turns, but uh, um, the, um, the trial was conducted under the theory that I had the burden of showing that it was the nunchucks were in common use for lawful purposes. Um, the judge later interpreted uh, a case uh, from the Second Circuit, New York State Rifle and Pistol Clubs, as shifting that burden to defend it. I'm not 100% sure that that's a viable interpretation, and I think it would be difficult to, to put it on the defendant to say, you know, to prove that something's not in common use. But in any event, there was some post-trial briefing, and the, um, the county had an, an opportunity to um, to put in material. They didn't put in much, neither did I. And then the decision was rendered 
I, it was it was okay though. I didn't mind going to the trial because you know then on appeal and there was no appeal. But if there had been an appeal, uh, I would at least have the benefit of uh, you know being able to say, well, it doesn't matter because I already satisfied that burden. So even if the court got that second part wrong and shifted the burden to the other side erroneously, I'm okay. So there was no appeal, which is another surprising turn. I, I thought there might be an appeal, but. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, in some ways, I'm a little disappointed. It would be nice to take it up. But in, the other, in other ways, I'm happy that it's done. Uh, an interesting little aside, though, uh, a district court's ruling on that may or may not be dispositive. Um, in a case called Avidabile, uh, up in the Northern District, also came down in, uh, I guess it came down in 2019, early 2019, not long after, after the Nunchuck case. Uh, the Northern District of New York federal court ruled that uh, the ban on tas <clears throat> tasers and stun guns was unconstitutional. And yet, um, in that same geographical area in New York, in Rome, New York, city of Rome, um, I read of a case, uh, I read an opinion, where the judge declined to um, apply that federal law and dismissed a motion to, or denied a motion to dismiss criminal charges um, for possession of a stun gun. So we have an interesting federalism debate emerging, uh, not quite as much in the public eye as Brown v. Board of Ed and Sequelae, but uh, interesting. I mean, you know, uh, I guess I could be prosecuted for possession of nunchucks. And if the judge in you know, the criminal court says, I, I don't like that Maloney v. Singer's case, I disagree with it, my motion to dismiss goes away. And under New York law, I can't appeal until after the trial. So got a long haul in uh, criminal defense. Uh, which is, you know, part of the punishment for a lot of criminal defendants. I mean, you know, being in the system is uh, enough of a punishment, whether you're convicted or not. We all know that. Uh, it certainly can be. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, I've gone off on about 16 different tangents. You wanted to focus me on the bigger Second Amendment question. And I think what I articulated earlier is is kind of, um, you know, the, the, the vision I have uh, of what the problem is. I mean, I, I, I'm a mediator also, and I, I tend to really try to see both sides and um, understand what each side is feeling and believing. And I think both sides are right here. You know, I mean, uh, you shouldn't have to worry about your kids going to school and being gunned down by some random person who comes in with an AR-15. On the other hand, should you have your AR-15 taken away because people do that? Uh, if you've been responsible, uh, there's got to be better solutions than the ones we have. Uh, and it raises a whole bunch of issues that really can't be debated in 20-second sound bites. I mean, you have issues of federalism and preemption. You have issues, you know, what, what parts of the responsibility has to go to the federal government, what parts have to go to the state. I mean, acquisition, really, if it's going to work, has to be controlled by the federal government because you have open borders, although maybe with COVID-19, that's less so. But the bottom line is, if you, if you buy a weapon in Arizona and you come to New York, you're not going to have any problem bringing it in. So acquisition of stuff that's a little bit more dangerous uh, would have to uh, be a problem that's solved on the federal level. But again, I think, you know, a, a much more well-developed jurisprudence of the Second Amendment at the Supreme Court level has to occur before we can get there. And the problem is that under our system, that takes a really long time. Um, in the meantime, I thought um, I had an experience uh, in my second part of law school. I, I studied at NYU actually from uh, 97 to 2004, a very long, slow LLM program. And I had the opportunity to uh, work with uh, Dieter Grimm, who was on the German Constitutional Court, the Bundesverfassungsgericht, for 14 years. It was a term, you know, they don't have lifetime appointments there. And he came and he was a visiting professor. And I was in a course with him just, um, just before, uh, well, just after the I started the Nunchuck case. So I told him about it. And he said, well, under, you know, German jurisprudence, this would be resolved 
applying the principle of proportionality. You know, um, if it's a weapon that is has much greater capability of doing harm, there would be greater capability of regulating it. And if it's a weapon like these two sticks, there would be less. And you, it wouldn't be a problem to have it in your home, that sort of thing. I don't know that Germany has had any of these cases. He didn't allude to any. But, uh, you know, I think that's the kind of thing that the Second Amendment is going to need in the development of its jurisprudence. I don't think the standards for acquisition and ownership of um, semi-automatic centerfire um, magazine-fed rifles, and we'd like to use the term, some like to use the term assault rifle, and I, you know, if you want to use that as a shortcut, that's fine, but I like to be specific. I don't think the acquisition of those uh, needs to be controlled at the same level as the uh, regulation of acquisition of, um, you know, a single-shot shotgun or moving down the line, a pair of nunchucks. Uh, on the other hand, certain weapons may fall into the dangerous and unusual category, um, and I'd like to point to the flamethrower as a good candidate. It's not been developed. Uh, maybe hand grenades. Sawed-off shotgun? I don't know. Um, you know, um, they were used in the Army in Vietnam. Uh, a lot of Vietnam uh, vets have told me that uh, that was a weapon of choice as a sort of a sidearm. You know, you've got your rifle, your uh, AR-15, uh, M16, actually, fully auto. But, uh, you know, having one of those, especially when you're asleep at night, was uh, kind of a comfort um, and, and, you know, they don't really have that uncontrolled destructive capacity. Uh, basically, if there's a birdshot and a sawed-off shotgun, it's going to become ineffective at any significant range. But it doesn't open up so widely that if you're in a small room, anybody's at risk. It's still going to be the person that's being pointed at. But in any event, that's the history, and a page of history is worth a volume of logic. So we have Miller basically establishing that as a sort of dangerous and unusual weapon. I guess the interesting question is, would um, it be possible for um, these so-called assault rifles, the uh, semi-automatic magazine-fed centerfire rifles to be construed by the court as dangerous and unusual weapons, notwithstanding the fact that some 10 million or more Americans legitimately own them. Is that possible? I guess it's possible because the you know words in the law can mean things that they don't mean. I mean, actual malice in libel law doesn't mean actual malice. I think it means something slightly different from that. So, um, you know, is it possible? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that it's necessary. Uh, on the other hand, I can sympathize with those who feel uh, very worried about these being out there. The problem, of course, um, is summed up in the Greek phrase that uh, has been taken on as a rallying cry, Molon Labe, which comes from an ancient Greek battle uh, with Sparta, where the Spartan leader said, you want to take our weapons? Come and get them. Molon Labe is like, come and get them. And the, the corollary of that is, uh, uh, over my cold dead fingers. So, I mean, a lot of people who are owners of of um, of so-called assault weapons uh, are probably not going to be ready to just surrender them if the law suddenly says they should. And, um, you know, I can see both sides in that one, too. I mean, uh, if you're in a situation where you may need something like that to defend your home, can you count on the government to, to take over and, 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 and make sure you're okay? I don't think so. So I can understand their reluctance um, to give into that. Um, um, so, you know, the way to solve the problem probably would be, I mean, we're a big country, Switzerland is small, but, uh, uh, you know, in Switzerland, um, th there's a, a militia that's a little bit better organized nationally and people qualify and own, you know, very powerful uh, semi-automatic weapons uh, along those lines. And, um uh, the Daily Show, Michael Costa, who uh, actually interviewed me about the nunchucks, he did a segment uh, where he went over there, and and a former president of the Swiss uh, Federation was there, and and uh, 
there's all these people with with guns and he doesn't even have any security because everything's fine. <laughs> um, so, you, you know, you have a, a national plan of qualification and basically enrollment in a militia. Uh, the current state of the law here doesn't recognize anything like that. And I don't know that it would necessarily be viable given our large population, but there might be some kind of uh, way of of considering a reasonable measure to ensure care and, and qualification and skill um, being taken with weapons of greater destructive capacity. The problem, again, getting back to the point of tangency, is we're so far from that because we don't know where the lines will be drawn, and you're not going to get the um, the support in Congress, especially in the Senate, uh, for such measures because of the you know democracy and distrust problem. You're simply not going mm -hmm. to get support for these measures that might be reasonable if they ended there because people are going to say, what's the next step? Um, and that's that's the problem in America. Um, um, I call it seeing the elephant sometimes uh, comes from a metaphor, um, a, really a, a parable, um, the six blind men and the elephant, you know, um, the um, the one is up at the front and feels the trunk and thinks it's a snake. And then the next one feels the tusks and thinks it's a spear. And then the next one feels the ear and thinks it's a fan. Next one's at the side of the body, thinks it's a wall. Next one's at a, one of the legs, thinks it's a tree. And then the final one is at the tail, thinks it's a rope. Uh, none of them sees the big picture. Um, to solve the problems of gun violence in America while accommodating Second Amendment rights, the big picture needs to be seen and addressed. Uh, everything from federalism questions and preemption questions to balancing rights, uh, proportionality, again, as Grimm put it, uh, needs to be applied. And um, I mean, it would really be a no brainer. You could solve this. I'm, and maybe that's the way to do it. I mean, a really, it almost, I think in, in modern democracy here, it would take a third party. It would have to be like the Republican Party emerging in response to slavery. You need a third political party that was, you know, its goal was to accommodate these two uh, problems and come up with legislation that both sides could live with. And their first major, their opus major opening thing would be a comprehensive piece of federal legislation that would then be tested by the Supreme Court. I mean, of course, you got to wait for standing issues like I was talking about before. Uh, and, and uh, you know, then you could establish some parameters. Uh, but you can't really establish, you, you're not even going to get any kind of legislation like that with the current um, gridlock. Uh, you know, this oppositional democracy that I talk about, it's what it's 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 more prevalent and obvious in the area of gun control and Second Amendment law than in, I think, any other area of the law. Um, you have two sides diametrically opposed, each side blaming the other for lack of progress. And there is no progress. And um, the only way to break that gridlock is either to have a Supreme Court that almost becomes so activist that it's intolerable, um, you know, legislating from the bench, you know. Uh, and, and they can't, I, at least I, I kind of hope they can't. And then the alternative is either to have these two oppositional sides come together in some kind of mediated agreement to legislate in a way that can be challenged and, you know, carefully, um, carefully thought out. And then you see what stands after the challenges go up uh, or for a third party to emerge. And, the, you know, the, the situation in America may be perfect for that, for a third party to, to come out that would, um, seek to accommodate, um, you know, both the rights of, of uh, those who wish to be armed and the concerns of those who wish not to be shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, Jim, in closing, I know that you attended the Maritime College. 
and you teach at the Maritime College as well. And I know that it's played a really important part in your life and in your intellectual development. I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about how your work in the college and in the maritime industry has informed the way that you kind of practice law and think about what you do? Yeah, um, I think, well, let me say this. When I went to college, there were a couple of things. One is I was kind of the geeky, book smart kid who wasn't really good at the practical stuff. Um, But on the other hand, I had no interest whatsoever in anything as dry and boring as the law. I was interested in nature and, you know, the works of greater powers than some human legislature, you know. So I went there with those two starting points, and it was a transformative process. I I had to um, become more hands-on and practical. I also had to work with other people um, and learn from them and teach them so that my strengths could help their weaknesses and vice versa. Um, So in setting me up to be a lawyer, this whole idea of good seamanship and working together and solving problems and created them kind of predisposed me to that. Uh, but I still didn't want to be a lawyer. But I thought, you know, at the time, gee, maybe someday. So when they offered a humanities minor there, uh, I was the first one to jump on board. Plus, it got me out of some boring courses and I could do history and, you know, literature. But um, anyway, you know, fast forward 10 years and I've gone to sea and been a paramedic and all these hands-on practical things that now have come into my life and, you know, spent a lot of time reading and uh, and uh, learning and, and learning how the law dominates your life and, you know, I decided to go to law school and um, found it a really fascinating experience um, for a number of reasons, uh, not just academically, but just the experiences that I had there. I went to law school at night and uh, I met people who had uh, real lives before, as I did, you know, um, the first female chair of COMEX is my classmate. They were cops. They were firefighters. It was a, an interesting mix of people to exchange ideas with. And um, when I went into practice, I started as a maritime lawyer working for firms, um, but they um, they were kind of, uh, these two particular firms were around from the mid-1800s, were kind of declining around the time I was there. And um, in the, really the end of the uh, 20th century, 1999, I decided to uh, become a solo practitioner. And, uh, you know, that's when I got into um, some constitutional cases uh, like this one and others, some 1983 cases, things like that. But I think the the, the big um, legacy or takeaway from um, the Maritime College experience was one of practical problem solving, um, which seems to be lacking in so much of legal practice. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and in democracy, I say oppositional democracy, instead of trying to solve problems, uh, people try to oppose the other side and create problems and blame it on the other side. And this is a, just a formula for disaster. And when, you, when it occurs collectively, as is happening in America on so many levels, um, it's, it's distressing. Um, so I guess what, what, I, what I always say to uh, people in, uh, you know, opposing counsel even is, uh, you know, I try to solve problems rather than create them. So let's, let's try to do that. Um, it doesn't always work. Um, and I can be vicious in, you know, in return if I have to. Uh, you have to have the teeth to show, or else you won't get the, <laughs> you won't get the respect. But um, you know, I, I try not to create problems, and and I think a lot of that comes from, um, 
you know, going to the Maritime College and especially going to sea afterwards. I mean, I, I made my living as a merchant mariner for seven years. I, I was confined on ships with other people, not always people that I got along with. Uh, sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. But we worked out our differences and we got along and we did our job. We had a common mission and we'd save each other's life if it came down to it, you know, whether we liked each other or not. And that's the kind of thing that uh, I, I think is a great foundational education. I'm a big supporter of the the program up there. I opposed um, their changes um, back around the turn of the century. In fact, that was the case I referred to earlier when we were talking about those events of 20 years ago. Um, under the land grant um, at SUNY Maritime, um, a series of statutes, federal one in 1950 and a state one in 1951, and then the deed a few years later. Uh, under those uh, documents and laws, um, the school and the property really was supposed to be used perpetually as a maritime school devoted exclusively to purposes of nautical education. So when I went there, it was only those who were pursuing the license track and the seamanship track. Uh, now it's been opened up to more. And um, at first I opposed that. Um, but uh, now teaching up there, it, it's it's a pretty good environment. And, you know, it's water under the bridge or over the dam or whatever. And I think it's still a great institution. And so I'm happy to give it a plug in closing. SUNY Maritime College, Bronx, New York, 10465. <laughs> awesome. Jim, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you about all the fascinating cases you've litigated and experiences you've had. And I really appreciate you making the time to come on and share them with us. Well, I really appreciate you inviting me and having me. So thanks a lot, Brian. Everybody was